Hello everyone, it's September 24th, 2019. So NASA is planning on putting some CubeSats into that crazy Lunar Gateway orbit. In other news, some people in Congress are debating whether to kill Lunar Gateway altogether. Maybe they could build a space station out of CubeSats? That's my solution. And liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 229 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Well, welcome back, Dennis. Glad to be back. So I assume you just had a little cold, but it was a, you're all good to it go. It was, yeah, it was one of those 24-hour bugs. It was hell, but at least it was over, and it didn't affect work, at least. So <laughs> well, that's good. I lucked out. So all morning we've been uh, putting the final touches on the show and uh, watching the Boca Chica live feed from Lab Padre on YouTube. And uh, obviously, when you guys listen to this, um, you'll know a lot more than we do. But we're we're watching them put some wings on. They're 180 degrees apart, it looks like. It does not look like they are 120 degrees apart, which would be three-way symmetry. And so we've been sitting here scratching our head this whole time. Uh, ben Howard in the chat says the gap will probably be covered by the fairing structure that Boca Chica Gal photographed the other day, and that NASA spaceflight folks are saying it looks like the actuating hardware is in the flaps and not the body. So so we're just kind of trying to figure out why they would be installing these these fins at, at 180 degrees, um, which is what it looks like on the display. Although the more I look at um, previous photos from Boca Chica Gal, it looks like they originally were no it's it's still 45 degrees so so what do you what do you guys think about this is this not the weirdest surprise change yet in the starship architecture if these wings are indeed opposing each other on either side of the body then that is strange but i mean i still have my doubts but then again i'm very bad at you know looking at things and being able to tell i just don't have mm-hmm. that good of an eye or maybe mm-hmm. i'm just not good at spatial awareness or something mm-hmm. but it does look that way so mm-hmm. If that's the case, though, how is it going to land? Because it's going to be kind of awkward yeah. on one right. side, right? The, the only thing I can think for landing is maybe um, when the wings are in their full up configuration, they stick out at 180 degrees. But when they flap all the way down, they get closer to that three-way symmetry that we'd expect. Yeah. And so that, you know, it can flap down and at least land without tipping over. But yeah. like that, that's... Yeah, that's the only thing I can think. Unless they've decided to add a windward leg and they're going to have four legs, but that doesn't make any sense. When I look at some of these images of the, uh, you know, a mock-up of Starship, I'm not so convinced that it necessarily is 180. Like, I think, like, some of these, um, if you you look at the two side uh, wings, they definitely look like they could be consistent if you're viewing it at the angle we're viewing it as just being okay. sticking out on the two sides so so they're they're both slightly towards the windward and they're they're just um like almost dihedraled up as if um as if it's like the shuttle having a flat bottom mm. but that doesn't mean the wings are you know centered on its its uh center of mass in the um the dorsal ventral direction yeah that i mean that's reasonable but like there are some yeah. photos, can't rule it out right <laughs> there, there are some photos of this thing where like one of the wings is dramatically closer to the camera and the other one still looks like it's 180 degrees away mm-hmm. and not not more or less than that i mean it's just yeah well i was wondering do you have some other photos to look at because uh uh ch- check out boca chica gal on on twitter those are really going to be the best photos you're going to see 
Um, also gorgeous, uh, a few gorgeous photos of a production raptor just sitting on the ground. <laughs> and it just it looks so space age. I mean, just like to have to have this thing sitting out in what is essentially a junkyard that mm-hmm. we're putting a rocket together in is just bizarre and amazing. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They do look very 180-ish. What's interesting is that there's a cool rendering of what it would look like if it had four legs. So mm-hmm. it looks cool, but it doesn't... I mean, how would you land that windward? Like, wouldn't that cause some kind of instability? I don't know, because it just seems very odd to put a wing sort of like on the bottom of your lifting no, body. It's, or your... It, actually, it actually is not unstable. Like, it's, it's more stable aerodynamically speaking if you have lifting surfaces that are above, like, uh, that are dorsal to Mm -hmm. your center of mass um, which is why high wing aircraft like the Cessna are are so popular Um, but you can actually have them ventral of your center of mass and that's a well understood configuration and in fact that's what the shuttle is right the the shuttle had them ventral without any dihedral angle added and you know we uh, a lot of commercial airliners will also have them lower than the center of mass but they add a dihedral to kind of um bring the center of pressure up higher but i mean it's it's not yeah it's it's not super unstable like we totally mm-hmm. know how to work with it so well then my next question would be considering the heating loads on it how does that work it looks the, like that might heat up quite a bit yeah it, it's weird like i don't know but i wonder if this is actually a heating decision because i mean if you think about the the way the shuttle works you know it prevented a it presented a flat plane to the wind as it as it re-entered mm-hmm. and of course that then it had to actually use those wings to generate lift which um, Starship isn't doing it's it's more acting like a lifting body with a body extension it's it's never actually gonna fly sideways like it, it seems more likely that that's a heating decision than an aerodynamic decision and so maybe what they're trying to do is limit the amount of or, or I'm sorry increase the amount of center body that's exposed to the wind right so instead of having 120 degrees you get closer to 180 degrees of the belly exposed which means that potentially the belly is soaking up more heat than these thin fins, which are not going to be able to do transpiration cooling, or I guess would find it harder. I mean, they, they're not going to do it. We, we know that they're not going to do it because mm-hmm. they're using that for hot spots is, is the understanding right now. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think we could talk out of our butts all day <laughs> and probably not guess correctly. I have a, a basic question, actually, going back to the basics. One of the big things about the wings was like you mentioned, uh, David, was for the landing. And so even if these are just the two, they're not extending below the base of the, the main fuselage. Right. So what am I missing so did there? You, did you see uh, William 12's uh, render? So somebody on Reddit made a render guessing at the final shape of these wings. And he actually um, decided to add four legs that come out of the engine skirt, ah. um, which is uh, drastically different than landing on wingtips, which is what yeah. we've seen so far. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is a big change. And, and I, I think you're absolutely right. The fact that the wings don't reach downward uh, in this in this construction, in this version, tends to suggest uh, legs coming out from under the skirt, which is, you know, sort of what, sort of going back to the very earliest designs that were yeah. postulated. Yeah, although that's not what ended up happening, you know, with the Falcon 9, because that's kind of what mm-hmm. we all sort of thought, but, you know, mm-hmm. you actually have the legs mounted along the side, so that might be, because mm-hmm. putting the legs up under the skirt, that doesn't seem like you have a lot of stability because they can't right. really spread out, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, they're going to be very close to center mass. And, and you know, at this point, it's likely that SpaceX is just so confident that it's not a problem, um, given that they've not only landed Falcon 9 first stages, but also the Starhopper. They, they may just be happy enough to, to bring those inward, which is wild. <laughs> <laughs> it looks to me like you wouldn't want to land it in a high wind or like those high surface winds because it might just get blown mm-hmm. over. <laughs> Especially when it's empty, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's presenting a lot more Scary. surface area than just the uh, a Falcon 9. Yeah, it's got wings. Crazy. But yeah, so I guess we'll find out about, you know, hopefully have some answers uh, on the 28th, I think is when they're doing some announcements. Yeah, this Saturday. So, this Saturday. So yeah, we'll definitely have something to talk about next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be an interesting show. And then we'll get to see how much more Starship has changed because, I mean, just think back to what it was. I mean, it's clearly, you know, it seems that they're, they keep running into hurdles, which is inevitable. And then they have to go back and do some redesigning. And then they say, okay, this is what it's going to be. And then they go, mm-hmm. well, no, not that, but this is what it's going to be. And who knows what it's going to end up looking like. Yep, that's definitely their kind of culture of how they do things. Oh, yeah. Cool. For now, let's just do this week in space flight history. Got any winners here? Yeah, we got two winners, Chubby Turkosi and Max Delahouse. Delahouse? Yeah, let's go with Delahousse. So Max Longname also guessed correctly last week, and I didn't read his name, and I'm I'm very sorry. Um, also, big apology to Ben Hallert who guessed correctly, and I just I really blew it. Everybody was was correct, and I just I don't know I wasn't paying attention. Um, so the clue from last week was generic, no longer. And this week in spaceflight history is September twenty seventh, two thousand three. It was the last flight of Ariane five G. Uh, launching eBird and a few other satellites. So we'll talk about those in a sec. So some quick stats on Ariane 5G. It weighed 337 tons on the pad. It had a GTO capability of 6,900 kilograms or f- just over 15,000 pounds. Um, it also came with an optional 800 kilogram two satellite adapter that you could um, take up some payload with, but you'd be able to fly two vehicles. So G stands for generic, hence the clue. Um, later on, uh, so so right after this flight, they started flying uh, Ariane 5G Plus, which uh, added an improved upper stage. And then after that, they upgraded to Ariane 5 ECA, which is what's flying now. And that's got all of the all of the cool improvements, including uh, a new, well, uh, a Vulcan engine uh, on the first stage, but like an improved Vulcan, new tankage ratios because it runs with a different propellant ratio, boosters that got upgraded by trading structure mass by increasing their uh, their welding capability, so they can spend less mass on welds and more mass on fuel, and then also the cryogenic upper stage, the ECA upper stage. Um, There was also um, a GS and an ES configuration. Uh, GS was like a a quick reversion, so ECA went under investigation, and so they quickly kind of scaled back and uh, had a couple of uh, G pluses, (laughs) kind of this this weird uh, middle stage that they could run uh, that they trusted a little bit more because when the when the ECA failed, um, they actually had five more ECAs ready to go, and they're like, "Oh boy, maybe we shouldn't fly these right away." <laughs> so uh, Ariane five, the the G configuration was introduced first flew on the fourth of June, nineteen ninety six, um, and this was a very dramatic welcome to the uh, orbital launch 
party. So basically, they were still using Ariane for hardware and software for their inertial navigation, um, but they were flying a totally different ascent profile. And so the A4 software was in a, a new configuration or in a new flight regime that included larger horizontal acceleration than Ariane 4 ever flew with. And so I, you know, I say it's unexpectedly large horizontal acceleration in quotes because they knew that they were going to do this. They just hadn't uh, actually flown this hardware and software in that in that flight profile. And so they actually overflowed an integer, which is bad to begin with. But then they had an exception handling issue where it actually just crashed the software instead of uh, recovering nicely. And so it totally shut down their inertial navigation software and then rebooted and told the vehicle that it had made a huge course change. And so the vehicle decided to uh, tilt over 90 degrees to try to get back on course. And as you might be able to guess, a rocket facing 90 degrees to uh, supersonic wind forces results in the vehicle going into a rapid unplanned disassembly. Um, that, that happened like 30 or 40 seconds in from the beginning of the launch. There'll be a, a link on YouTube, a, a link to a YouTube video of this breakup. Um, so it starts to break up and then the flight termination software kicks in and, and does a firework compression. Um, so, so that was the first flight was a, was a failure. The 14th flight, uh, was also a failure. It, it actually resulted in delaying the launch of Rosetta, which was the next flight after that. And so that's why Rosetta went to 67P, uh, instead of their original target. They actually retargeted due to an Ariane 5G failure. But that's kind of a big jump from the first flight to the 14th flight were all total successes. And then 15, 16, and 17 were also total successes. And 17 was the final flight uh, of Ariane 5G. Um, and then, of course, Ariane 5 has continued on to fly uh, over 100 flights in total now. So the 17th flight uh, had three vehicles on board. INSAT-3E, which is uh, an ESRO communication satellite. Uh, eBird-1, um, which was uh, launched by Europe and eventually got subsumed into the EU Telsat network. And they decided to rename uh, all of their communication satellites uh, under um, similar nomenclature. So it was born as eBird-1 and then uh, was later renamed EU Telsat 33A and then moved to 31A. And then the final vehicle or the, the final satellite on this vehicle was Smart One, which is a, a moon orbiter built by ESA. So it's a pretty cool way to go out is to send a satellite to the moon. Yep. Gotta love the Arian launch vehicle, but uh, I just hope going forward into the future that it's still, you know, like relevant, uh, but that's a whole other topic because... They have the Ariane 6 coming up, but some are saying that it's a little bit, you know, too little, too late with uh, the launch industry trying to go towards reusable vehicles. And then you have uh, the Chinese being heavily competitive. I don't know, but it's such a cool rocket. And it's, it's, I think it's one of the prettiest rockets out there. I think just aesthetically, yeah, it's a, a good, gorgeous yeah. vehicle. I mean, one would say that that's, you know, how the French do things because they tend to be very <laughs> aesthetically pleasing in all things, you know. I've heard stories about just, you know, like, or not heard stories, but uh, it just tends to be something that they consider, not that they did 
that in this case. I don't think so. I'm sure they were just going for the best launch vehicle that they can make, but things do tend to have a certain, I don't know, just a certain style that like other mm-hmm. countries seem to sometimes lack when they're just going for utility. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's this week in spaceflight history. Um, I have a clue for next week. Um, it's 1958, and the clue is 12 pages. Well, this time I do know what that is about. <laughs> yeah, I got a consult on this one to make sure it was okay. Were it not for that, I would have no idea. Nope. <laughs> Next week in 1958, 12 pages. Well, if you think you know what that's about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. NASA is planning on placing a CubeSat into a lunar near rectilinear halo orbit. So that's a mouthful. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so this is the orbit that they're planning on putting the Lunar Gateway Space Station into. And and so this is sort of like a test of the orbit because this has never been done before, right? Mm -hmm. So they kind of need to know how it actually works. Although I I think that test is the wrong word and demonstration is the correct word. Mm. Well, then why are they doing the demonstration, I guess, is the question then. Well, it's new. CubeSats are cheap. I kind of figure. <laughs> and there's there might be some, I mean, you do have to do some, uh, I guess, station keeping to, keep, to stay in this orbit. You do need to do some corrections. So uh, maybe just to really check and see what actually happens when you go and throw something into this kind of pretty strange balancing orbit. It, it's worth <laughs> mentioning that this is basically an extension of um, an L2 halo orbit it's uh, there's actually a really cool visualization that will be in the show notes um, that shows the progression from a stable l2 orbit to the near rectilinear uh, orbit around the moon and the the space that's occupied by these stable orbits is just unexpected and weird Mm -hmm. and so um, being able to show that this actually works, I think, is actually pretty important. We're just always getting bogged down in semantics as usual, but <laughs> wouldn't you call that a test? Because it sounds like a test to me or well, my, demonstration test, I guess. My yeah, personal I term is I like Pathfinder. I oh, like, okay. okay. All right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, all right. Pathfinder. <laughs> It's catchy. I will so. cut the baby in half, and we shall call it a Pathfinder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm fine with that. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is a Pathfinder mission uh, that's going to use a 12U CubeSat, right? So, well, do you want to talk about more about the orbit? Because it's it's a strange one, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess you yeah. described it pretty well, Ben, mm-hmm. but it is hard to visualize. Yeah, so. yeah I mean, if you want to visualize it, the best way you can think of is just a highly highly eccentric orbit where it hangs below the southern pole for a long time and then whips around the north pole and, and drops back down mm-hmm. and does this about once a week and it's you know so about four times a month there there are some really weird parts where it you know doesn't follow the same path over and over it it almost follows like a like a old-fashioned lampshade kind of shape where it bounces back and forth between two sides but i mean ultimately if you think about it as a as a highly elliptical orbit facing south you you've got it mm-hmm. from all the visualizations i've seen it's when you look at the at it from the uh, earth's frame that it gets that kind of bizarre looking shape mm-hmm. uh, if you right. just stick to the moon's frame it looks like an eccentric orbit yeah which, which is kind of expected right mm-hmm. and, and um th- this probably goes without saying for a lot of people but stable orbits around the moon are very uncommon and the stable orbits that exist are relatively unhelpful if you want to be able to talk to the earth 
most of the time. And so being in this weird orbit is possible because you're not just relying on gravity from the moon keeping you in place. Um, you also are relying on the, the pull of the Earth and the moon's momentum around the Earth in orbit to help uh, stabilize your orbit. It's, it's weird and complicated and, I mean, genuinely really cool. There aren't that many weird orbits that are actually worthwhile. And Dennis, I, uh, I uh, wanted to really quick correct you on something before somebody oh, else does. Um, yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really handy because from the Earth's point of view, it looks parabolic, but from the moon's reference frame, it bounces back and forth. So the, the nice thing is that since it repeats every like four times in orbit, basically, you can keep in a halo orbit Right, that's the halo part is that you hmm. instead of your orbit processing or, or like the alpha angle, if you think about the way that the solar alpha angle changes for the ISS, um, that the alpha angle to the Earth stays pretty much solid. So it, it changes relative to the moon's reference frame, but relative to the Earth, it just looks like it circles it like a halo. Hmm. So it'll never pass behind the moon from the Earth's point of view. Yeah, yeah. Which is unexpected and weird and shouldn't happen except for, you know, end body magic. The name of the mission, right, is uh, Capstone. We haven't actually mentioned that yet. It's as far as acronyms go, it, it isn't bad because it's uh, there's the CAPS, which is the Cislunar Aut Autonomous Positioning System, which is just generally what they wanted to do to be able to keep the station ultimately where it needs to be. They need to develop a a set of methods to do this so that's what they've been calling caps and so since this is the caps technology operations and navigation experiment it's capstone i i actually didn't see this at all until you guys uh whoever brought it into the news here and this is pretty i don't know i think it's pretty awesome because it's you know it's a it's a good old cube set so it's not a very expensive thing to do and yet we're going to be having mm -hmm. something in this kind of wacky orbit that we were just describing <laughs> mm -hmm. describing and scratching our heads at yeah so actually do you know who's gonna launch this not known yet so here's what we know so far we know that a, a 13.7 million dollar contract was given to advanced space uh so they're managing this project and uh dealing with the uh navigation system and some of the other technology on board um, because one of the ways it's going to uh, navigate will be with communicating with the Lunar uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter. And so uh, it's going to be a 12U CubeSat, and the CubeSat itself is actually going to be built by uh, a subcontractor, it looks like, or a partner, uh, Tyvek Nano Satellite Systems. And so they threw out an idea of it possibly launching by the end of next year, but it's not known what vehicle, just a lot of question marks at this point. And uh, this CubeSat will be communicating with uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter to establish position and velocity. So that's how they're doing it. That's interesting. So it's going to determine its position and velocity just through that communication. Like, I mean, I, I guess you do have to, you know, ask the question, how does it know where it is? Because uh, I don't think GPS works in this case, right? Yeah. And, you know, knowing its position is very important. I mean, I don't know, like, with an orbit like this, like, do star trackers work? Like, what? You know, like, yes. what would you do? You know what I mean? Well, if only we had just done an episode on guidance, navigation, and control, <laughs> um, where we focused on navigation, which is exactly what this is. Mm. Yeah, it, almost certainly they're going to be using um, star trackers, but also Earth, Moon, and Sun trackers um, to collect all the information needed. Also, um, they can use ground-based trackers um, to to add, you know, as much information as they 
as much information as they need. The star trackers make sense, obviously, because that's how you can determine your orientation. I mean, that seems to be the most obvious thing because that's the easiest thing to do. Yeah, that seems like the basics that you need and then you need extra on top of it, right? Right, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's where the sun and the earth trackers come in. That too seems pretty straightforward because uh, I don't know exactly, like I, I just don't know enough about it because it seems pretty straightforward to me because, you know, you have like the sun, the earth, the moon, and these are big objects that, are, you know, mm -hmm. are kind of hard to miss. So <laughs> mm -hmm. even pretty rudimentary software should be able to, you know, lock on and do the calculations and then know where well, it is. Well, the problem is not locking on, right? Because you know exactly where the sun is. You're already using it to power your spacecraft. The problem is figuring out exactly where the sun is. And actually, because it's so big, that actually presents a problem because if you have the entire sun in your field of view, you probably don't have an accurate enough field of view to see exactly where it is. You'd rather be able to zoom in on a single star, right, which can fill only a couple of pixels and then you know exactly where it is. But something that takes up so much space it's less accurate than determining exactly where a star is right that's why you would need more things for reference points and i think the sun probably yeah. would be the worst of them because it's yeah plus i i don't even know how you what kind of uh instrumentation you need to even look at the sun because it's kind of bright uh, yeah. you can't look at any stars in the immediate vicinity mm -hmm. but i mean if you have yeah. the earth and the moon you can use that to you know sort of triangulate and narrow down just kind of like with gps satellites right like you yeah. need at least three i think so <laughs> kind of the same right. concept yeah kind of well actually um closer to the same concept is they're almost certainly going to be using ground-based uh, interferometry to figure out exactly where the the vehicle is and that is probably going to be the most accurate data they get i don't i don't know um but I, i'm guessing that that's going to be the bulk uh, of their navigation yeah my reading was that's the idea of using uh the lunar reconnaissance orbiter is because mm -hmm. that's going to refine it even better than a star tracker would and then right you can possibly do this without even doing well the interferometry is is not orientation so you need star tracker for orientation and then mm -hmm. two different uh interferometric measurements one from lro one from the earth should nail down its position pretty darn good mm. i'm assuming i'm assuming that's gonna really nail all this down and it's interesting that you know when it comes to navigation like if you're in a car you need everything inside the car you only get a little bit of wayfinding from signs outside your vehicle um, they know nothing about who you are and where you're going but on a spacecraft very little is inside your spacecraft a lot of what you're relying on is um, things external to you and so the more things that we get into orbit and the more infrastructure we have in space the easier and easier it is going to be it's like putting more and more gps satellites mm. up right right There's yeah. more and more opportunities to have somebody who's going to cooperate with you that would be cool if there was uh some kind of a not like a full-on lunar gps but just something in a mm -hmm. you know a much mm -hmm. higher orbit that could help yeah. out with that mm -hmm. or even something like solar system wide i mean how cool would that be i don't know how practical it would be but Sounds neat. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, so second story, translating slightly into politics, which we don't often do, I guess. Um, but this is kind of interesting. So there are some people in Congress who are looking to, who apparently are being lobbied to kill Lunar Gateway. So yeah, kind of an interesting side story to that. And, you know, I read the article and I have to say, uh, I don't entirely disagree. Now, am I crazy for saying that? Because, I mean, there were some good points brought up, even though clearly there is lobbying going on. Not a big fan of that. There's a lot of, well, like obviously 
you argue for a position that's in your own best interest. Mm -hmm. But uh, there were some interesting things here. So the idea is that going the commercial route of trying to get the Lunar Gateway built is maybe not as cost-effective as maybe just using SLS to launch directly to the moon and put people on the moon that way, mm -hmm. which I believe was kind of what everyone had been saying from day one. But then, you know, the whole Lunar Gateway came up. And now we're in, we're just doing that instead. So do you think that like they bring up a good point? I, I, I kind of do like it, even though like you had just mentioned, right? This, this is somebody with a, with an agenda who's kind of mm -hmm. trying to throw this idea out there of just killing the gateway and then focusing on the, uh, what the exploration upper stage. But when I try to like think about why one of the reasons, if I could boil and distill my understanding of why humans haven't gone back to the moon since the 70s it's mm. because we just haven't done anything like apollo you know what i mean we do these other things that are very non-apollo-ish and they're yeah. great in their own way but it seems like apollo is a way it's a it's a it's a, it's a tried and true method of getting to the moon it's way too expensive in general but i mean an sls with everything on it blasting there i mean i feel like it should work <laughs> yeah there's, there's so many more moving parts when you have you know something being assembled in that you know wonky orbit right but one we were just talking about your rectilineal halo orbit and you've got different companies that are all going to be every launch is another possibility for a mistake to happen every integration mm -hmm. is another possibility for errors and problems and so if you uh, Doug Cook is the person, you know, who's been making these arguments. And if you just focus on that, it sounds good to me, kind of. But he's getting paid to say this because, <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he's, he's, he's a consultant for Boeing. And, uh, you know, if you can cut out the commercial providers, you can cut out, you know, Boeing's competitors. So, uh, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I, uh, on the other hand, you know, maybe, I don't know, I've seen people argue that just Lunar Gateway just doesn't serve any actual real purpose. Even if if you think longer term as a staging ground to Mars, it's kind of, it's not very effective to go there and then to Mars. Right. Yeah. So Sam makes a good point that if you just do Apollo again, you're just doing Apollo again, which is fair. <laughs> Maybe it would just be doing Apollo again, but I thought the idea was to establish a base on the moon. And I don't know. I mean, I guess the Lunar Gateway would help in that, but you could still mm -hmm. just launch directly from Earth to the moon, right? Like, I don't understand what the point and, and, is. And in his defense, uh, I think he does kind of mention that, you know, I shouldn't say, I actually kind of am backtracking about whether or not I should have. I don't know if this is necessarily killing Lunar Gateway so much as postponing it down the road, right? Like, focus on the exploration upper stage and getting to the moon period and then develop the lunar gateway infrastructure around it. But that's an entire redesign though about everything because they're designing this in mind with these, these halo right. orbit and everything. So I think if they put people on the moon, then the lunar gateway would be canceled if they didn't need it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the whole reason why I think it exists, the lunar gateway is because they wanted to get the private sector involved more in, I guess, you know, just other contractors. And I don't know, it, mm -hmm. there is always the question of, is this more of a jobs program than anything else? Mm. Uh, so I don't know, but it seems like a straight path would be much better than taking this sort circuitous path one that's in a weird orbit to boot so i'm not wedded to the idea of us we have to get there in 2024 you know what i mean so maybe this kind of mm -hmm. long-term view is the right one where we do bring in other launch vehicles we build a station we do we lay the groundwork and foundation to make it kind of uh mm -hmm. so that unlike apollo we're not done 
afterwards. Just last week, we were talking about the Bigelow module. You know, like that's a very cool thing, and I would like to see it as part of the gateway. But, you know, I don't know how necessary the whole project would be having the Lunar Gateway. But at the same time, it's cool to see things like that possibly uh, be put into space. Sure, sure. So I guess the real question is, and actually this is a real question for me, is the goal to put people on the moon or to build a larger and more robust industry? around mm -hmm. space flight. Right. And are you willing to sacrifice That's one That's a good way other? to frame it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Short and sweet with a theme. So let's talk real estate. What's the first one? Uh, we've got updates on Rocket Lab and Blue Origin's launch complexes. So Rocket Lab announced that it has completed the pad at its Launch Complex 2 site located on Wallops Island, Virginia. They are now ready to integrate the strong back in coming weeks and construction on the integration and control facility has started. The New Zealand company hopes to launch from this site in early 2020, focusing on government missions. Meanwhile, recent NOAA imaging of the Florida coast after Hurricane Dorian has shed light on the normally secretive progress of Blue Origin's Launch Complex 36. After leasing the site in 2015 for its new Glenn rocket, the images show foundation work has begun for the launch pad service structure and horizontal integration facility. An installation of tank farms have also been seen. Next up, uh, SpaceX is offering a buyout. Uh, so uh, SpaceX is now looking to expand its facility at Boca Chica, Texas. A number of households in the nearby residential area were made an offer to sell their property to SpaceX. The residents were offered three times the appraised value of their property, as well as other incentives such as front row viewing of development events off limits to the general public. So far, at least 10 residents have indicated that they will most likely not accept the offer. SpaceX has stated that the deal is non-negotiable and the offer will end on September 26th. So, yeah, wow. that's pretty aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me wish I had purchased residential property in Boca Chica <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't want that I could get rid of. Right. <laughs> What's interesting, yeah, is it some people don't want to leave because they say that three times the buyout cost is still not enough because yeah. for some reason they wouldn't have the means to move somewhere else. I, mm. I, I've never had yeah. to buy a house and then move, yeah. but I don't understand. It definitely depends on what the rest of the market looks like, but also... Um, it's reasonable to believe that three times the appraisal value is not the highest number. So even if the rest of the market looked good, it, it might be a good idea to, to hold out. All right, you guys ready for me to do my last one? Copy that. And finally, Japan seeks to double its launch capacity. So currently the Tanegashima launch facility only has one pad for launch of its H-2A orbital rocket. It's now planning construction for a second pad to increase the launch cadence. At present, the turnaround time for launch pad refurbishment is approximately two months, meaning only six launches at most are feasible within a year. The new H-3 rocket being developed by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is expected to go into service by 2020. With this additional launch vehicle entering service, the hope is to achieve a capability of two launches within a three-week time frame. So that's interesting too. I did not know that they only had one launch pad at Tanegashima to launch to orbit and that it took so long to, you know, yeah. get it refurbished. Right. And is, is not Mitsubishi Heavy Industries the most Blade Runner sounding yeah. name? <laughs> I just, I love it. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. I guess we just have an update on what we're going to be doing at uh, the IAC. Yeah, so um, we're going to kind of piggyback off of off nominals already planned events so um 
if you don't listen to Off Nominal, you should. And they're really cool people. And um, so we're going to go to their meetups. David is not going to be able to make at least one of these. Yeah. Um, so I, I, we're also going to do at least one other meetup. And we'll announce that at a later date when we finally get our plans together <laughs> and figure this out. But uh, if these work for you, uh, you should come because you're going to see at least two-thirds of us and mm -hmm. then also the off-nominal folks. So the, they both take place on Sunday, October the 20th, which is the Sunday before the conference begins. Um, at 10 a.m., they're going to be meeting up at the Udvar Hazy Center, which is going to be really cool. Um, David's definitely not going to be able to make that one, so we're going to go back to the Udvar Hazy Center um, unless something comes up. So you'll have two opportunities to go um, with a bunch of space nerds. And then um, secondarily, they are meeting at 7 p.m. at a place called the Dasha Beer Garden, um, which is downtown, really close to the convention center. And so they've got these two. I think we'll probably do an echo of this. We'll probably do our own trip to Udvar Hazy and our own um, beer meetup. And yeah, but we're I know I'm going to these guys. <laughs> so if, if you have time or, and or if you don't think you'll be able to meet up in the during the rest of the week, this is what you should plan for. So you can visit events.offnominal.space. That's offnominal with no space or dash. Um, and that's where they put all of their scheduling. They've got such great websites. Uh, I know, right? You know, <laughs> three websites between two people. And they, they do such a good job. But you can go check that out. Uh, for for more details, let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events now. So finally, we have some launches because you know there had been a, a shortage of launches, but now the the hose has been unkinked or something <laughs> like when it rains it pours uh, yeah. rockets. So what's the first one? <laughs> so uh, assuming uh, if you're hearing this on Tuesday when we released it that the uh, uh, Jax's uh, HTV Konotori has uh, launched successfully, hopefully no fires or anything. And uh, then after that, on the 25th of September, we've got the uh, Long March 2D, which will be taking the Yunhai 102, which is a uh, satellite, Chinese satellite designed for detecting environmental elements in the atmosphere and ocean, the space environment, disaster prevention and reduction, and scientific experimentation. So it's got quite a few things there. So this launch will be taking place at 0148 UTC with a launch window from 0148 to 0115 UTC. And the launch will take place at Launch Area 4 in Jiuquan. And then next up on that same day, the 25th, we have a, a Soyuz FG, uh, and it's the Soyuz MS-15 mission. So this is launching three people, some cosmonauts, astronauts. Uh, we have Jessica Meyer and Oleg Gripochka and Haza Ali Al-Mansuri. I don't know if I pronounced that quite right. but um, So those are the three astronauts we have. So yeah, this is um, a crew rotation mission, I guess. Mm. And this is the first flight for Al-Mansuri, who is a member of the UAE Space Agency, which I don't know if that's UAE... S-A, I'm not yep. sure, but yep. <laughs> okay. So how do you say that, UASA? Is that you or you? I would just say U-A-E-S-A. U-A-E-S-A. Um, yeah, so he'll be spending eight days on station. So that's cool for a first flight. I feel like that's a good first mission, right? So like you get to go to space, but it's just for eight days and then you can come back, you know, like if you, you, know, like if you don't like it, try it out. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. I'm sure mm -hmm. it's awesome. But yeah, so uh, this was going to be the MS-12 mission, but it got bumped due to the MS-10 failure. So yeah, if you remember all that happening. So this is the final Soyuz FG launch. That's the last one, and it will be launching at 1357 and 43 seconds. 
against UTC. So this is an instantaneous launch window, and it's launching from Pad 1.5 at the Baikonur Cosmodrome, and I guess it's also known as Gagarin's Start. Is that what it's called, Dennis? Yeah. This is this is the the original the OG pad. Yeah, I okay. didn't realize that they called it Gagarin Start. That's pretty cool. And then uh, later that day, um, MS fifteen will be um, rendezvousing and docking. So um, that coverage comes from NASA TV. So everything's in Eastern time. So the coverage begins at three p.m. Eastern time again on September twenty fifth, uh, Wednesday. And then the docking is scheduled to occur at three forty five p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the coverage for the hatch opening begins at 5 p.m. and the hatch opening is scheduled at 5.45. And then, of course, they have the welcoming ceremony directly on ingress, I guess. Wow. And all that was September 25th. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> on September 26th, uh, a Soyuz 21B with an upper stage frigate is uh, planning to launch the uh, EKS-3 or Tundra-3 uh, satellite. So this is a uh, early warning Russian satellite that's just part of a next generation getting sent up there on Tundra orbits. So uh, this will launch at 0700 UTC with a launch window from 0700 to 0900 UTC. And so given the uh, high inclination, this will be launching from Plesetsk. <laughs> this will be launching from Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia. And then on the 28th of September, there is the rendezvous and capture of the Konotori HTV. And that's assuming that the launch does happen on September 24th, which is a Tuesday, which is when this comes out. So, yeah, that's all contingent on that. But that'll be cool. And you can watch that, I believe, on NASA TV. So coverage begins at 545. Uh, capture is scheduled for 715 a.m. Uh, and then coverage of the installation will begin at 930, roughly thereabouts, I guess, uh, or not at all, depending on if it launches so keep that in mind and finally on monday the 30th of september a proton m with a breeze m upper stage will be launching eu telsat 5 west b and mev1 so eu telsat 5 west b is replacing 5 west a and of course you know that's a, a digital broadcasting satellite and then uh MEV-1 is Mission Extended Vehicle 1 from NGIS. It is a satellite refueling spacecraft. And oh boy, this is so cool. So it's mm. actually going to Intelsat 901 and it will dock and refuel the vehicle, um, buying it an extra five years of uh, station cool. keeping and attitude control. How That's cool neat. is that? It's happening. This is the future that, that we've been waiting for. It's so cool because the reason why I think, you know, like you said, it's uh, the future that we've been waiting for is just because it's like a practical thing to do. You mm. know what I mean? And that's what makes space more real is when it gets practical. Like, yeah, you would refuel your spacecraft. You don't just, you know, abandon One it. One and done, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that Proton launch, uh, it's flying an instantaneous launch window at 1026 hours UTC. Uh, out of Baikonur. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. That means it's time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. 
And that's it. So we'll see you next week on Robot. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.